Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today I have the honor and distinct pleasure of speaking with none other than uh, Deepak Tibroy, who is the chairman of the PM's Economic Council and also a voluminous uh, translator in the field of Sanskrit texts. Uh, It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. So perhaps first we can talk about uh, typically these podcasts are centered around a single work and there is uh, one single work that you manage to translate and survive <laughs> and few, few if any others have, have, have managed to translate the entire Mahabharata, the entire critical edition of the Mahabharata. So maybe you can say a word about um, how few people have done so and perhaps tell us how you embarked on doing so yourself. Mm. When we are talking about the translation, we are talking about translations in English. And we are talking about unabridged translations, word by word, word for word translations. Because there are plenty of abridged translations and retellings. Now, so far as unabridged translations are concerned, in English, there are just three. There is one by Pilal, but that was more of a transcreation. And because you mentioned indirectly the uncertainty, Pilal's translation or transcreation was published posthumously. The three unabridged translations are by Kishori Mohan Gangoli and Manmathanath Datta, both of which was, were done towards the end of the 19th century, and the third one is mine. And indeed, there have been people like Professor Van Buitenen in Chicago who started a translation but died halfway. The other thing to note, of course, is that when um, Kishorimon Gangoli and Manmathanath Datta did their translations, they really had a board of scholars to facilitate it. So it was not, these were not single-handed attempts. Where un- unlike Van Buitenen's and mine in this day and age, these are single-handed Thank you for clarifying in terms of the, the scope of the translation and the, the language of the translation. Um, now, uh, this single-handed attempt of yours seems to have been accomplished amid a variety of administrative uh, duties and, and, and also, uh, also 
in a field that's not in the area of your primary training. It seems remarkable that anybody could find the time in their spare time to translate the Mahabharata. Tell us about how long that took you and how you found that time. Um, it's not a very easy question to answer. The reason, well, let me be candid and say that I have no formal training in Sanskrit whatsoever. My Sanskrit is completely self-taught, particularly self-taught in the last uh, 15 odd years. The reason I decided to do this translation is because the Sanskrit pundits weren't doing it. Had the Sanskrit pundits been doing it, then I wouldn't have felt the need. Let me also mention that if one is unhappy with what a so-called Westerner translates and the way that so-called Westerner translates it, that's negative unless we do our own translations. And as I said, the Sanskrit pundits weren't doing it. Neither Kishori Mohan Ganguly nor Manmathanadatta was a classic Sanskrit pundit. So do notice that the three eccentric people who've done this translation all happen to be Bengalis and they all happen to be somewhat eccentric non-Sanskrit pundits. I could say that my interest in these texts originated several, several years ago. Not a serious interest, that was more of a dilettante's interest. The serious interest happened around the year 2004. Around the year 2004, I translated the Bhagavad Gita, which I have always wanted to translate. By then, my Sanskrit had got better, and translating the Bhagavad Gita gave me confidence. Confidence to be able to handle this kind of Sanskrit. Obviously, I would have a great deal of trepidation if someone asked me to translate Kalidasa straight away. But this kind of Sanskrit in the Itihas and the Puranas is simpler Sanskrit. You don't have complicated images, metaphors, similes. The subject is normally where it is expected to be. The verb is where it's expected to be. Adjective is where it is expected. The only thing that stood in the way was the sheer size of the Mahabharata. Because after translating the Bhagavad Gita, I did want to translate the Mahabharata. Primarily because there was a back. The 10-volume translation that I've done amounts to 2.25 million words. So that's about 80,000 shlokas. The belief is that the Mahabharata has 100,000 shlokas. But I base my translation on Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute's critical edition, which has excised some shlokas. So the number of shlokas is about 80,000. I wish I could say, I give a satisfactory answer about how I found the time. The time sort of found itself and it was almost as if an unseen hand was ensuring that I found the time. While the Mahabharata was being published, the 10 volumes, now it's available in a box set with all 10 volumes together, but they were serially published. 
So essentially one volume every six months, which roughly meant that on an average, I would have to do 1,500 words per day. On an average, there were days when you could not, so you needed to compensate, but the average was about 1,500 words per day. Essentially, that time was extracted by refusing to go to TV panel discussions. Uh, it's not that I cut out on the dinners, but I completely eliminated going to pointless TV panel discussions, which is why people often ask me, you're no longer on television. The reason I'm no longer on television, and it's not just the past tense, it's the present tense also, is that my time is more fully occupied in translating. Staggering. Fascinating. So, having, having translated the entire Mahabharata, how has your perspective on the epic changed uh, having done so than, than prior to translating it? What stood out to you? What struck you about the epic post-translating it? Well, there are two kinds of responses. One is a direct response to the question you've asked me. There is a second question, which is perhaps even more important. You haven't asked me that, and I'm not the competent person to answer that question. And that is, as an individual, you change. Now, I am not the right person to answer the question. I know I have changed, but someday you should ask my wife about how I have changed, because it does, a text like this does change. Now, so far as the Mahabharata is concerned, despite having read the Mahabharata earlier, the Mahabharata, before I actually began to translate it, was primarily about stories, primarily about the protagonist, not just in the course of the Kurukshetra war, but other parts. When I translated it word for word, I realized how much of an encyclopedia it was in terms of the geographical descriptions, in terms of the beauty of the poetry in some places, in terms of the wealth of material it has on dharma, dharma in the Raja dharma sense, which today we would translate as governance, in the sense of individual dharma, which does not always mean moksha dharma, the dharma of emancipation, the dharma of being freed from the cycle of worldly existence of sansara, but also the dharma for grihastha, the householders. And large parts of this text are not about the stories, they are about this. And that is the reason why Itihasa, Ramayana, Mahavarata and the Puranas they are known as the Pancham Veda because they tell us the essence of what is in Sanatan Dharma through these forms. It certainly is. I'm slightly biased being a scholar of um, epics and the Puranas, but, but Sanskrit narrative has this deep transformative power just reading it. And I can only imagine immersing yourself in the story world of the Mahabharata and translating it uh, unfortunately, your wife is not here to attest either way, but I imagine that um, uh, both of you were changed in, in the process. <laughs> um, well, to put it in one sentence, you find peace. 
You find internally. You put it in one sentence. Shantarasa. This is what they say that the Mahabharata gives you the experience of peace, which is uh, both profound and paradoxical, isn't it? Ah, uh, why are you saying paradoxical? Because peace depends on how you look at the word peace. Maybe peace is not the best word because peace signifies war. We think of war and peace. Perhaps serenity, tranquility is a better word. because the center of the mahabharata not in its popular renderings on in, on television and in films is the war but the war is just incidental to a whole lot of other things that go on this is uh, something i often think about my primary work was on the devi mahatmya and the narratives of uh, durga and there's so much focus on this face of wrath and without the realization that it's episodic it's yeah. the the war the, the the wrath is episodic it's it it's it's a means to to a saumya compassionate a, a, a tranquil face that prevails uh, ultimately so i find it fascinating that you you glean the same insight from from the mahabharata itself um were there parts of the were there books i mean it's vast yeah we could do a podcast on each parva i'm sure but were there parts that you found most gripping or most insightful um before that can i sort of pick up on what you said um absolutely and i'm going to quote someone not for you quote something not for you but for viewers because you mentioned the devi mahatmya i'm going to quote from the devi suktam right towards the end of the De- devi suktam i'm going to quote two shlokas khargini shulini ghora gadini chakrini tatha shankhini chapini vana bhushundi pariyayudha i don't need to translate it essentially all kinds of weapons are being mentioned next verse saumata sauma महिषासुरा in the center of that there's uh, the praise of the chakradi stuti or indra and the gods are praising them in the center of that hymn there's this pair of verses the one that says that your your face is shining like the full moon's orb and the very next one says who can survive the enraged face of death and this is this is the this is the this is the synthesis of these opposites you know it's it's quite profound um Uh, now that we've had our little uh, Davy segue, <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a particular parvan or scene in Upakyana that, that you know that I'm sure there are a number, I'm sure there are dozens, but that really um, stayed with you or you found instructive or particularly inspiring or it is tough to answer that. But look, by training, after all, I'm an economist. 
So when I find that Bhishma is lying down on his bed of arrows in Shanti Parva and is instructing, by the way, for, for viewers, the Mahabharata is divided into 18 Parvas, books, sections, whatever you choose to call them, and that's how we know it today. But there is some internal evidence which suggests that originally it probably had 100 parvas. So when I look at Shanti Parva, Shanti Parva will have sub parvas which are also called parvas. So similarly, Shanti Parva has a Raja Dharma Parva. It has an Apat Dharma Parva, which is Dharma in the terms of calamities, which enables, which allows you to deviate from the normal norms of Dharma when there is a calamity and you have a Moksha Dharma Parva. In Raja Dharma Parva, here is Bhishma lying down on his bed of arrows and he is instructing Yudhishthira about what a king should do. And he says that these are the 17 most important types of civil cases that you should get tried in order of importance. And it struck me that even in that day and age, right at the top, you had a breach of contract. <laughs> or alternatively, when he's, by the way, similar things also exist in the Manu Sangeeta and other Dharma Shastras. Similarly, when he's talking about criminal cases, he says that if it is a relatively rich person who's guilty of a crime, you should not imprison him because that's at the cost of the public exchequer. Instead, it should impose a monetary penalty on the person. It's only a poor person who cannot pay the monetary penalty who should be imprisoned for a crime. Now, you may or may not agree with this as a value judgment, but it has an impeccable logic of its own. It sounds like the something that the University of Chicago Law and Economics guys would have thought of. So, A, because of my training, I was interested in governance and Rajadharma. And the template for governance in a situation where today we expect the state, the government to do 100 different things. Whereas here in that template of governance, you had a limited number of things that the king, the Rajan was expected to do. A whole lot was left to the individual, a whole lot was left to the community. The other bit that I became engrossed in and continue to be engrossed in, was that when we think of dharma, we think in terms of moksha dharma. But there is a whole lot in the Mahabharata. There are around 20 other Gitas in the Mahabharata, so to speak. Not all of which are about moksha dharma. And they are about all kinds of different things, essentially about what the householder was supposed to do. And today, like in that day, most people are householders, they are grihasthas, they have not gone off to Anvanaprastha, they have not gone off on sannyasa, they are not going to find mukti from the samsara. So, that template of Raja Dharva and that template of individual dharma is what I find most interesting. Um, it's fascinating, it really is. Um, leadership governance is, is, uh, is uh, an ancient issue problem uh, it's it's imperative and so um, the royal ideology as i call it is something I, I find fascinating in the in the epics and in the puranas as well um 
And really, this sort of leads into something I wanted to ask you uh, directly, which is uh, pertaining to the relevance of these texts, the extent to which um, they still have much to say uh, about being human, living human life in the modern world. Um, I have the good fortune of giving a presentation at um, the University of uh, Delhi on, on Saturday. It's a program, I believe, that's co-sponsored by the Ministry of Education at Spark, and it's talking about the the the, the relevance of the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita uh, for modern life. And I promise that I will not... Um, uh, I, I will not parrot your insights during that talk, <laughs> but but if I do, I'll give you credit for them. But I w- I'll happily uh, hear your perspective on 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 the vitality of the text uh, for life today. By the way, I, I delivered a talk on uh, under that same series some time ago. I don't remember what I said, though. but anyway, you see my my. Uh, reaction to most people who ask me this question. And now I'm responding to the Mahabharata, but I would say the same thing about Itihasa and Purana. So I ask them, have you read it? If you have not read it, how do you know whether it is relevant or irrelevant? You are interested enough to make comments on what Duryodhana should have done, what Karna should have done, on the basis of souped up, dumbed down versions you see on television. Either you are not interested or if you are going to make comment, make informed comments and the first thing you can do to make informed comments is to read them. Otherwise, how do you know whether they have value or you don't have value? You will mechanically chant mantras. And as I said, I am not responding just to the Mahavarata but to the Itihas Purana corpus in general. You will mechanically chant mantras and at the end of the mantras, because someone has asked you to say so, you will say, Om Shanti Hi Shanti Hi Shanti Hi. Has it ever occurred to you why you are saying Shanti Hi three times and not 17 times or 19 times? If you are chanting the mantra, it seems that you think that is relevant. So if you think that is relevant, should you not know why it is relevant? You seem to think that it is relevant to go to a mandira, but you will not ask on what basis is the mandira constructed. The description is given in many texts, but primarily in the Matsya Purana. I will bow to the image of a deva or a devi. I will not be aware that that is based primarily, not exclusively on the Agni Purana. I will meticulously follow a Sraddha ceremony. I will not know it is based primarily, again, not exclusively on the Gaudura Purana. So you ostensibly believe, but you are not bothered to find out what you believe and what you believe in. So please read it and then decide it has no value. Will you decide it has no value because someone sitting there in Harvard and uh, Gutenberg and wherever it is, has read little bits of it and has given you a caricature of it and on the basis of that you have decided that your history, your legacy, your treasure has no value. Then I am sorry, you do not know what the word value means, you do not know what the word knowledge means. The person in rural India whom you visit and if it is a meal time, 
that person in rural India who is still imbibed with this tradition will say, this is a atithi and I will not let the atithi go without having food. That person is more aware of your tradition than the person who is asking, is there any value? So that would be my response. Well, Dr. Debra, you're asking people to read and think and, and have informed opinions. You may be asking a bit too much. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in, in the you mentioned in passing uh, two of the the Mahapuranas. So, uh, tell us about uh, the your journey into the rest of Itihas in terms of uh, the Puranas you have translated and perhaps the ones that you are preparing to translate. Well, when we meet Krishna in the Mahabharata, Krishna is already an adult. So a question is asked, what about Krishna's childhood deeds, his childhood, his exploits? Those figure in the Puranas also, but they are also in a figure in a text which is loosely known as a Purana, but strictly speaking it's not a Purana, it's called the Harivangsha, which is regarded as a sequel to the Mahabharata. So after the Mahabharata, it was but natural that I should translate the Harivamsha. And having done the Mahabharata, it was perhaps natural that I should translate the Valmiki Ramayana. And the Valmiki Ramayana and the Mahabharata in passing a very remarkable contrast. Contrast in terms of the kind of poets these two were. Valmiki, poet, nature, descriptions of nature. Veda Vyas are much more matter of fact. He would not waste time describing nature. It's more like so and so did this, so and so did that, etc. But anyway, after that, I decided to do the Mahapuranas. There are 18 Mahapuranas, some of which actually have never been translated in an average form into English. I'm not talking about popular ones like Bhagavad Puran, which has been done. I'm talking about all of them. Oddly enough, a few have not been even translated in unabridged form into major Indian languages. So I decided to do the Puranas, Mahapuranas, to give some idea of the size. If the Mahabharata has 100,000 shlokas, the 18 Mahapuranas are believed to have 400,000 shlokas. So it will convert into something like 12 million words. So my Purana project is to translate these. The Bhagavad Puran and the Markande Puran have already been published. The Brahma Puran and the Vishnu Puran have been done. They will be published in the course of this calendar year. The publisher for all of these translations in Penguin. I have translated on the Shiva Puran. So this is the Purana project. Two of the Puranas are very long. The Padma Purana which has 55,000 shlokas and the Skanda Purana, which has 85,000 shlokas. I am reasonably certain I will translate the Padma Purana. Whether by the time I get around to translating the Skanda Purana, it will be time for me to ascend upwards or descend downwards, I do not know. But I hope to accomplish at least 17 of the translations. That is... Uh... That is that would be staggering if you were a a, a full time scholar of such texts. It is uh, incomprehensible that this is what you do in your spare time. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, um, it is being done. Um, 
in terms of the the the, the source materials the critical editions uh, or the, could you say a bit about what you're using to translate out of the actual uh, sources um well for the mahabharata i decided to use the critical edition again for those who do not know that in the year 1916 the bhandarkar oriental research institute sat down with the 1200 odd texts of the mahabharata that we had in india to try and sift through them and determine what is the critical edition i should quickly add that the mahabharata is one unlike the ramayana where you have the valmiki ramayana but there are other versions of the ramayana even in sanskrit like the dhyakta ramayana like the yogavashishta ramayana but the mahabharata is one except that there were slight regional variations for example did veda vyasa dictate to ganesha did he not those kinds of things essentially what the bhandarkar oriental research institute did is what we remember from school maths as hcf highest common factor in other words if a verse occurred in a large number of verse texts then the probability was pretty high that this was original and when i say this do one should remember that the mahabharata was not written down it was verbally transmitted orally the writing came much later and this transmission process occurred over at least 1000 years so over a period of time obviously there were additions there were embellishments even distortions no one can determine with certainty what the original text was so therefore the critical edition should not be regarded as the final word on the subject and it has been subjected to criticism typically on grounds of omission typically on grounds of excising shlokas it could not have been criticized really on grounds of commission i personally think and i'm sticking out my neck and saying this I personally think that the quality of the critical edition deteriorated over time. Adi Parva was the best, then over a period of time it deteriorated. Inconsistencies remained, and sometimes I've pointed them out in the footnotes that I've done. But I am not a Sanskrit scholar. I am not a linguist. I did not want to end up defending my source. So since the critical edition exists. i decided to base my translation on the critical edition that also faces criticism but that criticism is criticism that is directed at the critical edition it's not directed at my choice of the text and the bandarkar oriental research institute is a most most hallowed and respected institute harivansha i followed the same because the harivansha was part of the critical edition text when it came to the valmiki ramayana i followed the same path which was the baroda oriental research institute following the same route adopted by the mahabharata edition brought out a critical edition of the valmiki ramayana in the 70s so i used that when it came to the puranas there was a problem because some work has started on some critical editions on the puranas but you don't have one set of critical editions for all the puranas brought out together hence i decided to use something known as the ninnaya sagar edition 
because I wanted to be consistent across all the Puranas for my choice of text. The Ninnaya Sagar edition is regarded by scholars as the best. This obviously is based on Western India, so to that extent you could say it's the Western versions of the text, sometimes the southern ones. This was republished in the early 1950s by Nath Publishers in Delhi under a grant from the Ministry of Human Resource Development. So for the Purana translations, I'm using that. It's... Uh... For those listening, I mean, we, we have a number of, of uh, really have all cutting edge research uh, in the field, a number of different kinds of projects, ethnographic projects. Um, but for those who've ever heard us talk about the Puranas, you, you may have a sense of how vast, uh, how much of a jungle it is. And to, to venture to sally forth um, in a space where the critical editions themselves um, are at times difficult to to difficult to reach and tenuous at best. This is a this is an undertaking. This is a monumental undertaking to translate any of the Mahapuranas, and so it's 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 staggering, uh, frankly. Uh, now we we tend to pitch the podcast to more of the the interested public, the continuing studies crowd. There are a number of specialists and colleagues who listen as well. Um, I'd like to ask you something in particular about the Markandeya Purana. It's something that I've done a little bit of work on. And I'm so fascinated and intrigued by the intertextuality between the Mahabharata and the Markandeya Purana, where the the, 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 the Purana starts off with um, uh, Jaimini, stu- student of Yasa, coming to Markandeya and saying, look, uh, I ha- I, these questions plague me. I've read the Mahabharata. Um, um, I've read Dr. De Bruyne's translation of it. I still can't make sense of it. Um, uh, these four questions are, are bugging me. Can you help me answer these questions? And so it sets up Markandeya as this, uh, this, this, this sort of exalted uh, 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 figure. Uh, but I, I'm curious to know uh, what you make of the intertextuality between these texts. Um, but just to add to what you just said, the fiercest battle in the Mahabharata took place in the course of Drona Parva, uh, when Drona was the commander of the Kauravas. In Bhishma Parva, suddenly Bhishma killed 10,000 soldiers. I don't mean that, but the fiercest duels took place in Drona Parva. In the course of Drona Parva, there was a great clash between Arjuna on one side and King Bhagadatta, the king of Prague, Jyotishpur, on the other side, King Bhagadatta was Indra's friend. So in a sense, he was Arjuna's father's friend. Nevertheless, they fought and King Bhagadatta was already quite old then. He came to fight on a gigantic elephant known as Supratik. They were fought, fierce battle. Eventually, Arjuna killed Bhagadatta. Arjuna shot an arrow. This arrow flew through the air. There was a bird which was flying through the air. I don't know what is the right word to use for a bird which has got eggs inside it. Maybe let me just say pregnant. So this arrow struck that bird. The bird fell down on the ground. It fell down on the ground. 
she laid the eggs and obviously the eggs would have been destroyed but who can stand in the way when destiny intervenes so supratik had this huge bell around his neck another one of arrows arjuna's arrow severed the rope through which this bell was slung around the elephant's neck the bell dropped down on top of the birds saved them and they survived the kurukshetra war mighty clash going on all around they survived they became wise because amongst other things they heard bhishma narrate all kinds of things to yudhishthira so markandeya told jaimini these birds are wise they are residing on the slopes of the vindhya mountains go and take your instruction from these wise birds but as use the markandeya puran because you mentioned the markandeya puran to make two other points towards the beginning of the markandeya puran there is a place no let me backtrack a little bit i spend a lot of time not on the translation but on chasing within quotes research research is in trying to pin down various things make things explanatory self explanatory to the reader not leave things obscure eventually all of that research gets reflected in just one sentence one line of a footnote but there's quite a bit of research that goes into this and obviously i look at the preceding translations beginning of markandeya purana it refers to duryodhana as balaram's jamatri jamatri sanskrit is a language where words have multiple meanings so you have a primary meaning secondary meaning tertiary meaning so on and so forth jamatri most people would say son in law and people who have translated the markandeya puran earlier have invariably referred to duryodhana as balaram son in law but there is no story anywhere no account anywhere of duryodhana having means balaram son in law yes he was a disciple but that's it not a son in law after consulting several dictionaries i find that duryodhana that one of the meanings of the word jamatri is someone who's liked someone you love and that is all that was being said that is the reason i think we need more and more translations because each translation improves on an earlier translation let me give you an example from the mahabharata now this is a shraddha ceremony being held a shraddha ceremony for the kauravas being held not the immediate one after their death the subsequent one after a period of one year yudhishthira goes to bhishma and asks for permission to undertake the shraddha ceremony for jayadratha so why does he go to bhishma to ask permission for jayadratha shraddha ceremony he is not asked that for duryodhan and the earlier translators not just in english but in other languages at least the languages i am familiar with have said because jayadratha was evil didn't make sense to me so as karna so as duryodhana depending on what you mean by evil what is so very special about jayadratha and then it struck me Yes, Jyotir is a son-in-law. 
the right to do the sadha ceremony begins to belongs to some other lineage that was the reason he needed to ask bhishma's permission but let me come back to the markandeya purana in the markandeya purana there is a story of a demoness named jata hari as the name implies jata harini is a demoness that steals newborn infants babies it steals the newborn baby the infant from one household places it in a second household where there is also an infant baby so she replaces that one takes that one to a third household takes that to a fourth household and so on and so forth and generally causes confusion in the process however while she is doing that she devours every third child the implications of this may not occur to someone who is narrowly interested in sustenance to anyone else it will immediately occur that what is this is telling me is that the infant mortality rate then was one third or 333 per thousand that is the reason i think the multidisciplinary research the multidisciplinary lens should be brought to these texts and because many people do not know sanskrit it is important to do these translations so far as one text vis-a-vis another is concerned there are certain differences but sometimes those differences can be interesting again let me give you this story that we are all familiar with which is uh, manu and the uh, and the matsya avatar we know that story that manu goes finds this small fish brings it back puts it in a pot and so on and so forth we know that story a a minor question not part of my comment where is that river where is that river now that river is a river known as the kritamala which is a tributary of the vaiga near uh, madurai railway station now this also is part of a legacy we don't even know that kritamala that famous river is there but the point i wanted to make what was the nature of the fish and i said puranas because they were composed in different parts can sometimes differ they also differ because they are composed at different points in time in the bhagavata puran which is composed towards the south coastal parts that fish is described as a safari a safari is a silvery white fish small one typically found in the sea same story now being recounted in the brahma puran and the brahma puran was composed to the extent we can identify any of this is any degree of uh, objectivity around the orissa region in the orissa region that very same fish is no longer a safari it becomes a rahu and i mention this to illustrate the wealth of socio economic information that also exists in these texts provided we do the multidisciplinary research going back to the inconsistency there are inconsistencies typically in genealogies 
there are typically inconsistencies in terms of names how many sons did so and so have how many daughters did so and so have in so far as reconstructing history is concerned we may dislike purgator but purgator in his day did a phenomenal exercise and i think it's time people begin to follow that tradition of reconstructing history itihasa because all of this is itihasa itihasa is not myth myth it is itihasa this is indeed what occurred i think there is a template that is constant across all texts all of this and that is a template of conflict of dharma and dharma in the sense of right wrong morality ethics there are no absolute standards of dharma dharma being interpreted in this sense i am not talking about moksha this is what makes the text so very interesting and let me give you an example to illustrate what i mean by the conflict of dharma everyone knows that bhishma had a vow of brahmacharya at that time the princess of kashi amba said if you do not marry me i will kill myself i will immolate myself in the fire bhishma said i have a vow a vrata of brahmacharya i cannot marry you and we know the story amba killed herself became shikhandi and led to bhishma's destruction lesser known story arjuna also had a vow of brahmacharya for a limited period of time of one year and the princess of the nagas ulupi fell in love with him and said if you do not marry me i will kill myself you decide which dharma is more important protecting your vow brahmacharya or protecting the life of a woman two kshatriyas both in situations of brahmacharya arjuna decided to marry ulupi this strand of conflict of dharma cuts across all the texts and since we began this question this answer with the markandeya puran the famous harishchandra story the harishchandra story today someone would say oh my god how can a husband sell his wife unthinkable unpardonable but again we do not appreciate there was a conflict of dharma and it is because of, of the conflict of dharma as per the markandeya puran because there are different versions of the story arishchandra decided to sell his wife because to many people upholding a pledge protecting a pledge protecting a vow overrode any other norms of dharma now this of the conflict of dharma i think cuts across all the texts and this seems to me to be exceedingly interesting and it also seems to me that this is the reason these texts should appeal to us even today because they tell us there are these conflicts the context may have changed but the dilemmas and the trade offs we face today are no different and we also realize that karma is just the flip side of dharma we take a decision who's to say that decision is right but we need to face the consequences of that decision and dharma karma flip sides that's definitely a resonant view in that um the mahabharata for example Uh, the the real value the real um relevance of these texts is speaking to these moral issues that don't go away landing human beings in these situations where there is no clear cut path and the the tussle the the wrestling the struggle of what should i do 
and and why and how do we inform that? How do we justify that? What are the consequences of that? So yes, there's a tremendous amount of uh, potentially data in, in Itihasa Purana about the about um, societies and cultures long past, and yet there is this this very present uh, uh, human struggle with with ethics and 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 decisions and situations. Um, and to me, it seems the the I call it the Dharmic double helix. The Mahabharata spins it between poverty and nivriti, the central tussle between the Dharma of the world, the Dharma of of circumstance, of of culture, of society, of family, and then this Dharma, the inner life of absolute virtues, of the pursuit of moksha, of the perfection of of, of your consciousness in some sense, and and they struggle the inner life and the outer life, the, the social and the spiritual. These are two strands of the double helix that, that to me, really are the, the, the DNA of, of Hinduism to this day. And so I agree uh, very much that Dharma is the central pillar in the temple of Ityasa Purana. Because it's something that um, uh, these questions don't go away. And this is why these texts are ever-gripping, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree with that. So let me amplify a little bit on what you have said. What is Hinduism? The standard definition of Hinduism is that it is otherworldly. It is about Nivriti. The standard definition of Hinduism is it is about the Upanishads. It is about Vedanta, Zomano, Vidyankara, Chittani, Nahang, Nachasrotra, Juve, Nachagranamitri. That is Hinduism. If I look at renderings of Hinduism in the West, such as in the, tech, in the text, Max Muller decided to translate sacred books of the East. They were either Vedanta Upanishads or they were Dharma Shastras. What else was translated? Literature, Kalidas. But the Itihasa Purana represents the Pravritti strand also. So to equate Hinduism only with the Nivritti strand is unfair to Hinduism because Pravritti is what most people are engaged in amongst the texts themselves, including the Bhagavad Gita, amongst scores of people, only a few will actually achieve that liberation from the bondage of sansar. The rest of us have to perform and act in sansara, which is the Pravritti. But within that Pravritti, there is a template of dharma and this is what these texts tell us. And that's important. It's, that is why it's important to translate this strand of text also. In the, um, the, my, my doctoral work, and therefore the first book was on the, the Devi Mahatmya structure and ro- royal ideology and talking about poverty in the text. At the end of the text, the, 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 the the text is framed by a king who receives instructions uh, from a forest sage about the greatness of the Devi uh, in the end frame, along with a merchant who's also equally disenfranchised. In the end frame, they both go worship the Devi. And after three years, she's pleased and she says, you know, I'll grant you a boon, whatever you wish. And the king says, no, I just want my kingdom back. And the merchant says, I want that that knowledge that takes us beyond Inus and Minus. I want moksha. And in one fell swoop, swoop she blesses them both, one to, 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 to rule the world, and he gets promoted to, to being the, the, the next uh, Manu, 
Surya's son and then his next life, and she gives the merchant moksha. And there are some notable scholars who uh, view the merchant as the hero of the text. Whereas for me, it's clearly the king because he does the work of the Devi. The texts celebrate poverty. And part of the interest is exactly what you say. There is this caricature of, of Hinduism as, as otherworldly. And it becomes challenging to have a platform for even um, uh, um, social concern or activism. But when you look at the Puranas, when you look at the Devi Mahatma, for example, the Devi's Dharma is preserving this world. It's her very body. Right, and so this this is a really important theme. There's just one one thing I wanted to pick up on. You 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 <laughs> you relay beautifully the story of the birds who were born at Kurukshetra to talk about the intertextuality. Uh, this is something that I've recently um, been working on, and the birds who 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 mouth the Markandeya Purana, they're actually descendants of the birds of the Shangrakas who survived the Kandava burning. At the, at the end. And so there is this, the reason it comes to mind in this moment is because there is this sense of survival and preservation and world affirmation that's, that's so crucial to the Puranas and the Mahabharata, it seems. Um, we, uh, I'm mindful of your time, I'm sure you have a number of things to tend to. Uh, and so before we formally close, was there anything else that you wanted to add about these texts or your work? You just, just, I just wanted to react to what you said about the Devi Mahatma. Mechanically, people chant the Devi Mahatma, or parts of it. Argala Stotram, Chandi, uh, Durga Saptashati. And in this fetish, we have reduced it to Rupang Dehi, Dhanang Dehi, Yasho Dehi, Dishojahi. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. But the profound bit there, which runs through Devi Mahatma and actually runs through all the texts, is again from that Devi Suktam. Tvam swaha, tvam sudha, tvam hi vashakkara, swaratmika sudha, tvam akshredipve, tidha matra, tika sthita, more importantly, ardha matra sthita, nitya, yanucharya visheshata. So there is this energy, there is this Shakti, there is this consciousness, this life force that pervades everything. Even if we cannot find a ready expression for it, even if we cannot perceive it through our senses. And living this life is about trying to pursue this and trying to climb up that ladder and trying to uplift ourselves. Um, thank you very much for your time today. For those of you listening, we have, of course, been speaking with Dr. Pibek de Broy, uh, easily the most voluminous translator of Sanskrit narrative texts of our age. And um, um, might I add something he does in his spare time? <laughs> um, uh, for those of you listening, um, keep listening. Keep reading, stay safe, and keep contemplating the power.